The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Hey, how's it going? I'm Scott Kirk, along with my co-host, Lucas Sullivan, and thanks for tuning in for another episode of The Other Side Podcast. We've got a great show for you today. We actually are going to be talking to Jason Pappas, who is the president of the Columbus FOP, and we'll be talking to him about the rising level of violence in the city and minority recruitment in terms of the police department, Black Lives Matter, and a lot more. So you'll be hearing the first part of that interview in this episode, and then you'll hear the second part next week because there's so much great content that we didn't want to give it to you all at once. We'll also be talking about the former President Obama's portrait along with uh, First Lady Michelle Obama. Their portraits were publicly released this week, so we'll talk about what we think about those. But the Obama portraits, you don't like them. I don't care for the style that they were painted in. I think that in terms of like the realism, like it looks like Obama. Why is he in the bushes? I don't like that. It looks weird. He's like kind of like levitating in and out of the bushes in his chair. It's just weird. And then with Michelle Obama's, I don't really get the gray tone thing. And I get it that these are the artists that they selected and they wanted something different. This is well, it's definitely different. We have a clip of the president commenting on his portrait. So let's listen to that. That's pretty sharp. I mean, there were a number of issues that we were trying to negotiate. I tried to negotiate less gray hair. And Gehenna's artistic integrity would not allow him to do what I asked. I tried to negotiate smaller ears. (laughs) Struck out on that as well. Uh, You know, it's hard to obviously judge something that is a portrait of you. But what I I can say unequivocally uh, is that I am in awe of Kehinde's gifts uh, and what he and Amy have given uh, to this country and to the world. Also thinking about all of the young people, uh, particularly girls and girls of color, who in years ahead will come to this place and they will look up and they will see an image of someone who looks like them hanging on the wall of this great American institution. So I also have some numbers for you. First of all, the the portraits will be on display in the National Portrait Gallery. So far, there's been uh, over 72,000 visitors that have come to see it, especially during President's Day weekend. The two artists are Kahinde Wiley and Amy Sherald. And so both the president and the first lady specifically chose these artists. And each artist has their own unique style, which they're known for. And that comes through in the portraits. It just so happens that I don't like it. I had this conversation with somebody else. I get it. You don't want it to look like all the other portraits, but maybe if they could do two versions, because I feel like their portraits are so casual, almost feel like it doesn't look presidential. The story is kind of interesting behind the the artists like, uh, you know, Amy Sherald, who painted Obama's portrait. She's a struggling artist and said that she had, you know, a bunch of outstanding student loans, things like that, and and was relatively unknown. So, I mean, that's kind of cool, isn't it? For those of you at home, I wish you could see me shaking my head and like. So you think he should have done the traditional out in front of the Capitol with the looks like he's heavily caked in makeup face and, you no. know, the that stately portrait that we see or standing behind a chair with his. You wanted him in that kind of. I know that sounds boring, but I would have 
have rather that than the bush. I feel like the bushes are a distraction to me, like me personally. Like when I look at it, it's too much going on. I feel like, no, you don't have to look like George Washington because obviously he's a much different president than some of the presidents in the past. I just, I don't know. I feel like it's too busy. And I'm, and you know, I get the whole struggling artist thing, but, and like that doesn't mean, in my opinion, that does not mean like, okay, well then that makes this a great piece of art because the artists were struggling. A lot of artists struggle. But if you think about it in terms of a hundred years from now, when someone's scrolling through the roles of presidential portraits, they're not going to miss that one. That's for sure. So I'm excited about this one. We're sitting here with Jason Pappas, who was president of the Fraternal Order of Police, Capital City Lodge Number 9. A very tired Jason Pappas because he's been running around dealing with, if, if you've heard in the news recently, the uh, tragedy in Westerville that happened. And I guess I want to start there a little bit. Can you just kind of describe what your four or five days have been like and where you're kind of at mentally with the fact that you, for, for those of you who might need a refresher, there were two Westerville officers who were responding to a domestic violence call and when they opened the door at some point soon after they were shot and killed by a person who has been named as Quentin L. Smith. So can you just kind of talk about what it's been like for you the last four or five days? Sure, I'd be happy to. However, I just want to say I want the focus to be on the officers, not on me. I will tell you this is not unique to me, but I will tell you that every officer in Franklin County right now is mourning the loss of both of those officers. From the moment we get up, which starts very early right now, yesterday started about 4.45 a.m. doing uh, fundraising activities and being there to support the family till the time we uh, ended our evening, uh, probably about uh, 11 o'clock last night. We were out doing community events to make sure that the officers and their families were supported. And again, that's not unique to me. That's absolutely every law enforcement officer in Franklin County is suffering right now and mourning the loss of both of those heroes in Westerville that gave their ultimate price for the service. I wanted to ask you about domestic violence. Uh, in this case, the records show that, you know, he was calling, his wife was calling over a period of time. They called police numerous times. But domestic violence calls in particular are something that can be very dangerous for police and something it's hard to handle. Can you talk about why that is? Sure. There are several things that come into play when there's domestic violence involved. First, you have this uh, this dynamic of the family having a, a broken uh, relationship. When that happens, uh, there's always stress and there are illogical responses, emotional responses to situations that create an environment where people are not thinking clearly. And so uh, that often is accompanied by alcohol, drug use, or other factors. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, there are weapons involved. And so when you have alcohol, drugs, weapons, and an illogical environment, bad things happen. And there's a little side twist to that. And that is oftentimes people will call the police for help and the officers are mandated by law uh, to take certain actions to protect victims. And sometimes your victims don't want to have that happen. In the particular case of an arrest, when there is actual violence that can be noted, an officer is required to make an arrest, but that person may not want you to take their loved one to jail. And so now you have two combatants and not one. And so those situations often turn violent or volatile. One of the most dangerous runs an officer will respond to. As with a lot of things, there are some parts of this story that have gotten the public outraged. And one of those is the fact that Quentin Smith, according to reports, has paid someone to buy him a weapon. He wasn't allowed by law to have a weapon because he had been convicted of previous crimes. 
And in doing that, his wife had called police back in November and said, he's got a gun now and I'm scared. And the officer stopped him and searched him, but he didn't have the gun on him at that time. I just wonder how that all kind of falls on officers when they hear that backstory, because are they as outraged as the public or is it something that, man, I wish he would have had that gun on him at that time and we maybe have avoided all this? How does that fall on? Uh, well, well, both, Lucas, you're right. So um, when we get calls like that and we know that there's someone we with a, a disability, meaning they're unable to own a firearm. So when there's someone who's, uh, with the weapons under disability uh, violation, we want to stop them right then and there. We would like to be able to get the firearm off the street and protect the community at large, or including the family member. So that's kind of one piece. Yes, you'd like to take that action. Unfortunately, in that particular case where the suspect didn't have the, the, the weapon at hand, then the officers are not able to uh, develop probable cause for an arrest. The second piece of that, though, is are we outraged by the straw purchase? And when someone purchases a firearm legally for someone illegal to have them. So when that happens, the straw purchases happen, we are extremely frustrated. In this particular case, when it was brought to our attention that the straw purchase happened and that the the suspect in that particular case was brought to uh, arraignment down at federal court. I think you saw that the courthouse was packed with law enforcement officers. Mm-hmm. They're outraged by that. And so uh, our intent, and we'll be pushing, is to make sure that that person is just as guilty in this process as Quentin L. Smith for pulling into trigger. And if he's found guilty, we will push for the maximum amount of time to send a message that we will not tolerate straw purchases in our society. They're dangerous. We have laws on the books to prevent them. And bad things happen when bad people do bad things. That gets us into this this discussion about guns. You and I have talked about the number of weapons out on the street and the number of weapons that police sees that are part of crimes. And this city just wrapped up the deadliest year in its history, and it's well on its way to maybe even breaking that record this year. And so what do we do about that? Do you know where these guns are coming from? How are officers dealing with this? Is there more of a focus on it for them? Are, are there, is there starting to be a little bit of like, man, maybe we should, should we... Not scared, but should we assume more that people have more weapons? Are there more weapons in the community? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot to discuss within that topic, but let me just say this. Uh, There is an emphasis on getting firearms off the street. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I want to say we took uh, roughly 2,500 guns off the street last year. That's just what we turned in. And that kind of coincides. That's the highest number that we've ever taken. And it also uh, is at the same time we have the highest number of homicides. So the influx of guns into our community is prevalent. There are way too many firearms, illegal firearms out on our streets right now. So do we focus on that? Absolutely. In fact, uh, just a couple of years ago, the Division of Police created a gun crimes unit, and their sole responsibility is to investigate and pursue charges and to prosecute people who are illegally possessing, distributing, selling firearms. And so, yes, there's an interest. There's a focus. The only thing that I would say is because of the number of guns and we are outgunned on the street, there are a lot more firearms out there today than when I started as as a young officer. The only thing I can tell you is the more resources we have, the more cops that we can get on the street taking guns and doing more prosecutions. The only thing preventing us from doing more is we just don't have enough people. When you say people distributing, so are most of the guns coming from like a small group of people? Are they people from out of state or is it pretty broad and and, and just uh, 
a bunch of small distributors versus a handful of really big ones. I, I'm just trying to. Yeah, so there's a couple different ways that they come in. You would generally have a, a gun store owner or some distributor somewhere. Oftentimes they're from out of state and they will do a lot of transactions illegally. Mm-hmm. Those guns then get funneled, basically distributors to every state through, and usually through gangs. And so what will happen is you have somebody with a lot of sales from a gun store in, let's say, New York, and then they'll be distributed by dozens at a time into Ohio, and they'll go into a you know into a gang uh, environment, mm-hmm. and then those get distributed to the gang members, and then they infiltrate into our communities. And then if there's uh, one of those guns are confiscated by us. Fear not because another shipment is coming from New York in a matter of weeks. And so that constant permeation of firearms into our community uh, persists. And it's not just one state. It's not just one gang. If you guys are familiar or have heard me say this before, Columbus, Ohio now has about 40 identifiable gangs with more than 4,000 gang members. So you think about that number and how many of them will be carrying firearms. It's a significant number. And so those guns just keep getting replenished. And until we get uh, a firm grasp on the gangs and who are bringing them in, we're going to continue to have this kind of problem. I saw on social media in the aftermath of what happened in Westerville, some people in the black community were posting kind of a warning, I guess you would call it, to other black men. Uh, Mostly, I saw it directed toward black men saying, you know, this is going to be used now by some officers to justify police brutality against black people and then and to be extra vigilant and be extra cautious. And I wonder what what is your response to that kind of sentiment? It's ludicrous. You think about the situation here. You have a guy who's a suspect in killing two police officers. He's a suspect in the domestic violence case. And there are other responding officers who get to that scene and see what happened. And they didn't use excessive force. They took Quentin L. Smith into custody like we would do anybody else. We use force when force is necessary and only necessary to affect the arrest. Anything beyond that would be excessive force, and we don't do that. In this particular case, like I said, you know, when the threat stopped, the force stopped. And that's how we train. So an environment in Westerville is going to be the, uh, treated as the same as an environment in Columbus. We use force to stop threats. And then when that threat is over, we stop our force. Do you make a point to keep an open dialogue with groups who speak up when there's police violence, especially against minorities? Do you try to keep up some kind of dialogue with those groups? I do. And let me just, Lucas, I, I don't believe that we have police violence against any segment of our community. Okay. Um, we have levels of force and we use force in compliance with our rules and regulations. And if we exceed that force or if we violate our use of force policies, we're held to account by our division. We have officers that are disciplined from time to time for using force, but we do not create violence against our community. We partner with our community in a lot of ways. And the answer to your question is yes. I have had an open book and an open dialogue for a long time, for the five years that I've been the president. I have met with dozens of community groups and have attended dozens of community meetings. I've done hundreds of radio shows. I've done, you know, a hundred different media outlet stories where I've been involved. I've met with the president of the NAACP here and I've met with everyone that I could possibly meet with to develop relationships. Because one thing that I've come to learn as I get older is life is about relationships and it's really easy to dislike someone you don't know. But when you have dialogue and you have a relationship with someone, you don't have to resort to violence or hatred or anything else. You can agree to disagree on an issue and move on. It doesn't have to be confrontational. 
And clearly, out of all the groups that we've met with over time, both the division and the Fraternal Order of Police, we've had differences of opinion. But that's okay. But I guess the divide is real, albeit as despicable and ridiculous as it is. When when you had what happened in Westerville, you had reports of people calling up dispatchers and saying vile things about cops. And, you know, the chief, the Westerville chief said, you know, quote, there's a special place in hell for folks like that. Right. Now, again, not justifying that behavior at all, but it does highlight that there are some real issues that need to be worked out here. So some of that, again, I think is a little more complex than just on its face. And I will just say, first of all, I can't thank this entire community, not just Westerville, but Westerville in particular. But this entire community has stepped up to show their support for these officers, which is exactly what I expected. As I've said a thousand times before, there are some issues with a very small segment of our population that do not like the police. People who do not like the police have been in existence forever. They'll continue to exist forever. We will never eliminate everyone who dislikes the police. It's just not possible. Some people just don't like to be held accountable. Some people just hate. But the overwhelming majority of people within our community support the police. And I think that was noted in an article just a couple of days ago. And so the difference between today and a couple of years ago is the prevalence of social media. I now have a platform where I can disseminate information quickly and get it out to people. When we looked at the protest after a couple of incidents that we had here, and if you recall, we had a protest at my lodge hall. People actually came up to protest to me. There was no more than 15 to 20 people at any one of these events, including the grand jury hearings after we had a couple of high profile incidents. I have photographs and we counted the number. It's less than 20 people. And some of those people are not even from Columbus. They come in from out of town just to protest because they are anti-police. They're, they're, that segment will exist forever. They just happen to be loud and they just happen to have a platform now with social media. And so I will continue to submit that the vast, vast majority of the citizens of Central Ohio understand what we do, they respect what we do, and they're supportive of us as an entity to help them. That group that is loud and has a loud voice that you referenced, there have been some incidents that have gotten a lot of media attention. They would point to Officer Zach Rosen. You know, you have the video of the, the stomping, you have the Henry Green stuff. There were some questions raised in the community and in the media about his actions. And I wonder, what's your response when there's some accusations that some of the officers, and they point to those types of incidents when they say, hey, look, that's a clear sign that there's some kind of vendetta against minorities and black people. Again, I, I completely re- reject it. Since you, you brought it up, let's just talk about Henry Green for a second. So one of the very frustrating things that happens in a criminal investigation is the division cannot release a bunch of information about the case. They just don't do it. It could impede the investigation and the prosecution of a case. In the Henry Green case, there were several people who were putting out information that was just false. Henry Green uh, had a CCW permit. The Henry Green was just walking down the street minding his own business, the Henry Green, whatever the case was. One of the people who were a witness at the grand jury even came in and testified that Henry Green was on the ground and the police stood over him and shot him. Now, all of that turned out to be false. So Henry Green did not have a CCW permit. Henry Green was standing in the roadway. But when the investigation is concluded, and and this will all come out uh, in both the internal and the criminal, when that case is concluded, you'll see that Henry Green was an aggressive individual who took an, uh, an action against what I believe he knew was a police officer. And I think Henry Green made some very serious misjudgments. I believe he fired first at the officer. And I think the evidence supports that. The witness uh, testimony supports that. And I don't believe that uh, Henry Green knew that there was a second officer that was there. And so at the end of the day, Henry Green is a someone who's violating the law. 
He's under disability. He's carrying a firearm. He attacks a police officer and shoots at them. So whether it was a police officer or a citizen, he's trying to kill somebody. He just happens to be against a, a trained officer who has the wherewithal to defend himself. And Henry Green is shot and killed in the performance of the officer's duty. What about plainclothes officers or jump out boys as they've been given the name? Do you think that's a a vital tool for policing or is it something that could be looked at as possibly making some changes to repair some of this mistrust that might be out there? What do you think about this type of policing? So I do believe that the, the term jump out boys is inappropriate, meaning that practice has been put out of our forte for years. That does not happen. And again, I know that came from the Henry Green case. I heard it personally. The officers were driving down the road and were confronted with an armed person standing in the road. They didn't jump out of anything. They responded to a threat that was in front of them. So we don't have jump out boys. Now that's kind of a side issue though, as to whether or not somebody should be in plain clothes. Plain clothes is a really vital tool that we use when it comes to doing surveillance. But you have to understand that at the end of the day, an officer is tasked with and required to prevent serious physical harm or death to other people. And so if you're in an environment where you're in plain clothes, a narcotics detective doing investigations or long-term covert investigations of drugs and other things, and they witness somebody taking an action they believe is going to cause serious physical harm or death of another, they're required by directive and law to stop that from happening. So as long as we're going to have plainclothes officers and we're going to have them, there's going to be a requirement for them to protect the public. So I don't believe it's realistic to say we're going to prevent plainclothes officers from having any enforcement action. The preferred course of action is to have them call for a marked unit, but that's not possible when somebody with a gun is standing in the middle of the street and the threat is immediate. That requires the officer to break their covert position and to take an action. Maybe you can help me understand sort of delving deeper into one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago. So let's assume that in 99.9% of the cases, officers act properly and there's no issue. But let's be honest, officers are people just like anybody else. They're capable of misconduct. They're capable of making mistakes. They have their own bias. I think that for a lot of African-Americans, they don't understand. I understand from a a law enforcement perspective, groups like Black Lives Matter um, may seem like it's an assault or it's questioning the integrity of law enforcement. I get that. And I can understand how that that would cause a reflexive reaction to that. And I think that most African-Americans rely on the police for safety and protection. I think they have great respect for law enforcement. But at the same time, it is possible that there are instances, even if they are few in number, where an officer has stepped over the line or gone against protocol. And so I think for a lot of African-Americans, it's organizations such as Black Lives Matter, whether you agree with everything they do or not, it's almost like the argument is dismissed entirely. It becomes sort of a, a zero-sum game. It's almost as if you say that you feel that um, someone has been mistreated or, or didn't hasn't been taken into custody properly or whatever, that somehow gets turned into that people hate the police. And I don't think that in a lot of cases, that's the argument being made. Would you agree that, that the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive? You could have legitimate grievances, and yet you can also have respect for law enforcement at the same time. And one does not necessarily mean that if you report or if you protest against police misconduct that you sort of 
hate police with a broad stroke. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And uh, let me address a couple of different points if I can. And I, I do believe that you're right. I do believe that you can have uh, legitimate grievances while still respecting the police. I believe that there are a whole lot of people and not just African-Americans, but I believe there are a whole lot of people who look at law enforcement in total and they do believe that they 99% of the time they're doing the right thing the right way. But every now and then they have a problem with something that, that has happened. And I would say we'll try to break this complex thing down in just a couple of bullet points. I always tell people, if you believe that you've seen an officer do something wrong, let us know because it needs to be investigated. What the community doesn't see a lot of the times are the low profile disciplinary cases that come down the pike. And what I mean by that is someone will make a complaint against an officer for either an excessive use of force or a use of force or rooted discourteous conduct or, you know, something along those lines. And then what will happen is it doesn't rise to a level of a shooting or anything like that, but it could. And then there's an investigation done and an officer will have been found to have violated some minor policy or some misconduct of some sort. Mm-hmm. And they will get charged. They'll either get, you know, uh, some counseling, depending on what it is. They'll get reprimanded or they'll get suspended based on, you know, the violation. We've had multiple officers within Franklin County terminated over the last couple of years for uses of force or not reporting uses of force. But they don't make the paper because the city does an investigation. They'll discipline or terminate the officer. They don't make press statements about those kind of things. Then the officer, if they appeal the case, it comes to the union for review. And we're pretty strict about the things that we do. And so if If you look at our history, we seldom appeal uh, those kind of cases because we hold our officers accountable for misconduct. That's my reputation as well. And so when it comes to those kind of things, most of the time you just don't hear about it until it's a big issue. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us out there at home. Please uh, make sure you um, tune in next week where we will be playing the second half of our interview with Jason Pappas of the Columbus FOP. And as usual, please go to Dispatch.com to find uh, more of Lucas's work. And please check out our other podcasts as well as our social media accounts. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.